Well, take out your Bibles and go with me to Luke chapter number 19. We are in Luke chapter number 9 in our verse-by-verse study. But for today, this being Palm Sunday, we're going to look, look at chapter 19. And throughout this week, we will look in these latter chapters of the book of Luke as we think about all of the events of what we now call Holy Week. Today we're in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse number 28. We've already read 28 through 38, so we'll pick up our reading in verse 39 and read down through verse 44 to complete our text for this morning. Follow along with me as I read you God's word. Saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. He answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known even now, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the days shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for time together with your church and your word. We ask for your blessing upon this time. Holy Spirit, we beg upon you to illuminate the word to us this morning that we may grow thereby. Do a work in our midst that no man can do. Lord, I ask that the words of my mouth and the thoughts of my heart would be acceptable in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So this is the day that we recognize in remembrance what we call Palm Sunday, or Jesus' triumphal entry into the city as he began the week making his way to the cross. I want to give you some information for clarity here, because as you read from Matthew's account, Luke's account, Mark's account, you do get some information that needs to be kind of overlaid to be able to understand it fully. If you are a commentary reader, someone has laid out John Calvin's notes in just such a way that you can read parallel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing to read together. I'm going to share with you from J. Vernon McGee this morning uh, this record from each gospel account. And he notes that Jesus actually entered Jerusalem three times. And it seems to be that he entered once a day for three separate days. So first he would have entered on Saturday, which to the Jews then would have been their Sabbath. There were no money changers on that day. And Jesus, he came in, he looked around, and he left. That's from Mark's account. Mark eleven eleven. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple. And when he looked around about upon all things, and now the eventide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And we would say on this particular account, he entered as priest. We confess this morning that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. Second, we find that Jesus entered on Sunday, the first day of the week, This is from Matthew's account, from Matthew chapter 21. The money changers were there. He cleansed the temple by casting them out. And we would see that he entered on this day as king. Third, on Monday, we would see that Jesus entered, this being the second day of the week, 
as a prophet. That's from Luke's account. We see that in the verses we just read, verse 41 down through 44. You can also read more about it in 47 and 48. As he, as a prophet, spoke some things, taught some things, and healed people while he was there in the temple. So just to get our timeline straight, to get an understanding of what's going on. We come on Palm Sunday. We think this happened this one time. And then you can read these altering accounts and think, well, some left off information, added in information. And likely what we're finding as we read this is is three different accounts recorded to us by three different guys. Well, you and I, as we just sang, were made to worship a king. This is what we are created for. Adam and Eve, early on in the garden, walked and talked with the Lord. Their entire existence had to do with their relationship with Him. We would call Almighty God, the King of glory. But this idea that we were made to worship a king, it explains a lot about human nature. It explains the fascination that we have with the pomp and the circumstance of royalty in our day. How many of you, you stay up in the middle of the night to watch a royal wedding? Or when a baby's going to be born? You know, that's really a thing, isn't it? But we, we have this draw. The, the people of Israel, as their relationship with God kind of dwindled away, they said, well, we want a king. And God's answer to them was, I'm your king. And they said, no, we want Saul. And God gave them this, but he gave them this in a form of judgment. But I make that point just to clarify that it is in us to want to worship a king as we see Jesus come riding in down off the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem on this particular instance. These people wanted a king and they didn't want a Roman occupier. They wanted a Jewish king. David's line. One from the right tribe. The one who had been promised. And they laid their coats in his path and they they swayed the palm branches and they said, Blessed, happy. This is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. It's like a political convention where the leader, already known, but it sort of made the the, the official candidate. You know, everybody knows who it's going to be, but they hold the convention. They walk the person out there and everybody clears and claps and cheers there. I combined two words, didn't mean to. They don't clear anything. They clap and they cheer. They already knew who it was going to be, but they're saying, this is my person. I'm behind them. I'm going to put their sign in my yard. They're going to fix all the problems. This is what was happening here. Palm Sunday stands as the time of Jesus' triumphal entry. As he officially and publicly accepts his role as the promised Messiah. And he begins his trek to the cross. Riken writes here, he says, As we watch the regal procession, that Christians usually call Palm Sunday, we see the king claiming his property, displaying his humility, and receiving some of his glory. As you and I walk through this passage this morning, I want us to consider this question. Am I ready to give King Jesus all that he royally deserves? Would I bow before him as king this morning? Were he to walk up this middle aisle? Would I I devote my entire life to Him with humility, all of my resources, all that He asks of me, even unto death? Would I give the King His due as His loyal servant? Begin this morning with the first of four headings 
Noticing from verse 28 through 34, Jesus' determination in this instance. And his determination is simple. He was determined to fulfill Scripture. He was going to do all that it was said that he was going to do in this instance. He was determined to fulfill the prophecies made about him. And I want to show you this. Let's read from verse 28. When he had thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he was come nigh to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount called the Mount of Olives. He sent two of his disciples saying, go you into the village over against you. In the which at your entering you shall find a colt tied, whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. And if any man ask you, why do you loose him? Thus shall you say unto him, Because the Lord hath need of him. And as they were loosing the colt, the owners thereof said unto him, Why loose ye the colt? And they said, The Lord hath need of him. So Jesus sends his, two of his disciples here to come and bring this colt for him to ride into town upon. Probably the best understanding of what kind of animal we're talking about here. You, you want to think uh, donkey, mule, peaceful animal here. He's riding it in peace. A conquering warrior king would ride in on a mighty horse. Strong and tall, ready for battle. Jesus doesn't ride in that way. He doesn't ride in in armor. He rides in upon a humble beast. He's got just... Blankets laid across it, coats laid across it for his saddle there. He's not, in this particular instance, girded up for war. So we, we need to understand that. But this is a passage filled with questions. I mean, what, what about this cult? Did he prearrange this? Or did he just say it was going to happen and because he's God-man, he can, he can make this thing happen? How was there this cult that just happened to be ready? Why did these people just let these disciples take their colt? I mean, we know why. They said, why do you lose the colt? The Lord hath need of him. Okay. Now, I long to live in a kingdom where that's exactly how things operate. Why are we doing this? Because God said, all right, what do you need? It's going to be like that someday, isn't it? Here we get sort of this glimpse of what it's truly going to be like when Jesus rules and reigns as king and we are with him as his people. But this is unique from the human point of view. Daryl Bach has written well here. He says, The detail with which the Lord prepares the disciples to find the cult adds another note. For him, the coming events will include no surprises. He has announced the sequence of events. Oh, it's comforting to know that this is how God operates. Oh, how is the world going to end? What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen in Russia? What's going to happen with our economy? What's going to happen with inflation? Well, I don't know. I used to sing the old song, I don't know who holds tomorrow, but I know who holds my hand. He's the sovereign God of the universe. He has ordered the events of this world. He has ordered the steps of my life and the steps of your life. And He is ultimately in control of all of these things. What a blessing to see that illustrated here this morning. As Jesus just says to his disciples, Go over there to town, you'll find a colt tied, loose him and bring him back. If anybody asks why, say the Lord needs him and they'll say okay. And that's exactly what happened. This wording is important. He tells them, and then it plays out exactly this way. If you're asked, just say the Lord needs him. I hope you operate this way. 
We should operate this way. Here was somebody who had a cult, never ridden upon, youthful, young. It had value to it. It had worth. But simply through the words, the Lord needs this animal, they said, oh, well, he can have it. Do you operate that way with your resources? Do you operate that way with your money? With your time? With all of your possessions? Never forget the the biblical position God has given you up against all of the, the things of life. We are simply stewards. James said, what is your life? It's a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. We must consider this up against our living. How are we using our time? How are we using the resources God has given us in life? Whatever they may be. If the Lord needs them, we should say, well, we're only His managers. He's the owner. And I do what He pleases. It's a good, good place to evaluate your stewardship. And I know that's not typical of the applications we get on a Palm Sunday, but... It was helpful to me, so I hoped it would be helpful to you. How are you planning to spend your money? How are you planning to use your time? How are you planning to use your things? And have you asked against all of the resources God has put into your life, Lord, do you have need of this? Have you asked of yourself, does he need it more for the kingdom of God than I need it for my own well-being? People in any circumstance in life are willing to make sacrifices for things they are passionate about this is the master's week no amens oh come on am i the only golf fan in here this morning my kids are sick of it one too many times in the last couple days they've heard they've said hey dad and they've heard hang on i'm watching golf (laughs) but i'm a georgia peach and this is the georgia pine tree golf tournament It's on night and day. Don't bother me this afternoon. I'm going to be seeing who wins this golf tournament, okay? Nah, it's not that serious. If you need me, just call me. But it is fun. But but, but kind of keeping up with some of the headlines and the stories going on with that, I've been doing some reading about the caddies. You know, these guys, they tote the heavy stuff for these golfers. The golfers, if they win, they make all of these dollars. But there's these guys who tote this money, and I've been thinking, like, well, do they get lots of money too? How does this work for these guys? And in reading some of their stories, you come to find out that while the golfer may be staying in luxury, some of these caddies are on air mattresses this week. While the golfer may make millions, some of these caddies are going to make zero. Like if their guy doesn't win, they're not going to make anything. And if their guy does win, they're going to make a minimal amount up against what this guy, a small fraction of that percentage. Well, why would you do that? Now, I'm not agreeing with them or endorsing them. I'm not trying to convert you to become caddies this morning. Well, I am in a sense for the Lord, right? But why would these guys sleep on an air mattress and eat bologna sandwiches and tote these heavy things around for this guy? All for just this game. Well, they're passionate about it. They're into it. They care about it. It means something to them. Shouldn't we be this way with our Lord? I mean, we celebrate once a year that there were some people who lined the streets and and had a parade for Jesus, but... That should be every day of our lives. He is Lord. He's risen from the dead. He died for me. He died for you. Lord, what would you have me to do? 
Where would you have me to sleep? What sacrifices would you have me to make for your kingdom? Best thing about our guy is we tote the heavy stuff. He wins every time. He didn't need the jackpot because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's king of the universe. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the potatoes under the hills. He owns the, the, the vine jewels and minerals and all of the mines and all of the worlds and we are his people. So he's well able to take care of us. What a wonderful blessing that is. But still the mentality needs to be there, doesn't it? Lord, whatever sacrifice I need to make for your benefit, I sure will. Are we willing to let the king stake his claim to what we feel like we own? It's all his to begin with. Well, Jesus seems to have this entire instance worked out here. He, he has a determination to be scriptural. First, I would say in that he fulfilled prophecy. As we read what happened on this day from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we can back this up into Old Testament texts and see that Jesus was doing what was prophesied he would do. Zechariah 9, 9 is a good example of this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through several of these. You're welcome to turn along if you want, but you don't have to. But I'm not going to slow down and wait for you. But if I, if I hear your pages turning, see, I'm talking. I've given you time to turn to Zechariah 9, 9. And I don't hear your pages turn. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon a colt. Not only was he going to the cross to die for his people, he would do so in a way that fulfilled all the prophecies about this happening. This should leave no doubt of two things. First, who he is. The way this plays out up against Scripture and then how it played out in life, if you were living at that time, if you knew the Word, if you are waiting on the Messiah, this should leave no doubt to who He is. And secondly, what He has done. Then and now. This should leave no doubt for us who this guy is, nor what He has done. So He fulfilled prophecy. I also want you to understand that He kept with ceremony. The ceremony of the day. The ceremony of the Old Covenant. Numbers 19.12 says, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. Deuteronomy 21.3, And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man, even the elders of that city, shall take an heifer which hath not been wrought with, and which hath not drawn in the yoke. 1 Samuel 6, 7, Now therefore make a new cart and take two milch kine on which there hath come no yoke and tie the kind to the cart and bring their calves home from them. And then verse 30 here in our text. What do we read then? Saying, Go ye into the village over against you in the which at your entering ye shall find a colt tied whereon yet never man sat. Loose him and bring him hither. So Jesus kept with ceremony as he entered in this way, his people would know the significance. Only such an animal, upon which never man sat, was qualified for this sacred task. He fulfilled prophecy. He kept with ceremony. 
He was determined in this matter. This says to you and I now that we serve a God of such order. What he said in his word will come to pass in our lives. Next, I want you to see his demonstration. Verse 35 down through 38 reads, And they brought him to Jesus, and they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So they bring this colt to Jesus. They put their coats on this colt for a saddle. And he rides it down off the Mount of Olives. And you've got to get this picture in mind. He comes from high down to where they are. So as if a parade, they can kind of see him coming along the way. And they crowd around. They lay out their coats, their coats as if they're rolling out the red carpet for Jesus here. And they begin to cheer with loud voices. Psalm 118.26 They know it. They've been waiting on this to happen. They're expecting, and here he comes, and they say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Finally, we see Jesus' glory openly recognized here. All throughout his ministry, his glory was privately recognized. Even if in groups, it was small groups. And at times he would say, Appreciate this, but don't talk about this. But here he openly rides into town, and his glory is openly recognized. And I would just pause there to say, we live in the day and age where Jesus' glory can be openly recognized. Should be openly recognized. Especially in the gathering of His church. When was the last time you said something with a loud voice in church? Some of you sang loud today and I was glad to hear it. It was great. I always know we're singing good, but I can't hear myself. And I've got the biggest mouth of any of us. Jesus was more than a baby of Nazareth. He was more than just the Galilean rabbi. He was more than a miracle worker. He was a royal figure entering the royal city down this royal road. He came as God's representative, as God's chosen king. He showed that the hopes of Israel are being fulfilled right before their eyes. He has sent his messianic king to bring peace to his people. This was the kind of peace that only heaven could establish. This was the kind of peace established in heaven that cannot be negated on the earth. Kings and rulers of men will make peace and then go to war. They can only do that against human agreements. But heaven, by almighty God's order, was sending peace to the earth that earth could not negate. See the demonstration that Jesus is making here. He's a shepherd going on before his sheep, leading them. Be comforted in that thought of your shepherd going before you and leading you. Knowing that wherever life leads, Christ has already gone there before you. He was in all points Tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He rides into our lives the same way today. With all gentleness. With all humility. He doesn't crush us with his superior might. No, this shepherd says, come unto me. 
All you who are laboring and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, put on my yoke. My burden's easy. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. He says, in me you will find rest for your souls. Church, I would say to us this morning that as our shepherd has exemplified for us, we should mirror that in the lives of those around us. We should enter their lives just the same way, with the same gentleness and with the same peace that Jesus illustrates here. We see his determination, we see his demonstration. Third, we see his declaration in verse 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and he said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. So here we find the religious leaders of the day saying, Stop this. They said, Jesus, you stop these people crying out with loud voices. You stop this parade. You stop this glorifying. Probably their issue here is they're afraid of the Roman reaction to this. This was a a non-permitted parade. According to Barney Fife, this would have been unlawful gathering. And the Pharisees say, they're going to come down on our heads because of this. You've got to make it stop. The other reason we would say here is, at this point they're already plotting to crucify him. So they'd much rather be working on a situation where Jesus is going to be put on a cross than in this instance a situation where it looks like he's going to be put on a throne. And so they say, you've got to stop this. I'm so glad that Jesus said, I can't. I mean, in a way, he says, I won't. Because of what his creation is going to do. But he doesn't just say, I won't. I'm just glad that he says, I can't stop this. What a declaration. Nothing can detract from this day. This is the day. Should Jesus silence his disciples? I think he could have done that. I think he could have said, hold your peace. And they would have. But he, he made clear to these Pharisees, if I do that, then what's going to happen? Oh, it'll be, it'll be a bigger ordeal than this. The very stones will cry out my glory. Now, you want to upset some Romans. You let the earthquake and shake. You let the earth begin to cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says, I, I can't stop this. God has ordained this moment for him to receive this praise in this way. He states here that even inanimate objects, rocks, understand what's going on here. Now, I know that's kind of goofy to say that. Rocks don't think. Rocks don't have brains. But get Jesus' point. You Pharisees. Gosh, the Pharisees should have been right on top of this. Were they not some of the most studied in the Word at that time? They should have been saying, this is what's supposed to happen according to the prophets. But instead they were saying, this is going to mess up today. This is going to mess up the now. They were so wrapped up in the temporal that they missed the eternal thing that was happening right before their eyes. So yes, Jesus does say, you Pharisees, you have heads full of rocks. You think you're so smart, but you don't even know what these rocks know. 
The Pharisees are ready here to accuse Jesus of blasphemy. And here Jesus is claiming his deity. Luke began his gospel with Jesus' birth, which declared peace on the earth. And here we find no peace on the earth, yet he records peace in heaven. In verse 38, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. This peace that he brings, not the peace that we know of, not the peace we would think of, brought peace in heaven. Rejection of Jesus by these people in this instance robbed them of that peace. We'll see this next as he describes their coming judgment. But I want to stop for just a moment and consider our own positions here. We're going to go and and see how this rejection by these in Israel led to some judgment. It's easy for us to think about what they did and what Jesus continued to do and just skip right over our own condition here. But what about you and what about me? Are we rejecting Him? Are we worshiping Him as King in all of His regal pomp and circumstance? Maybe He doesn't fit our religious mold. Maybe He doesn't fit our social mold. Maybe we fear that He's going to upset the balance we've grown to love. Or maybe... Hopefully, we are readily receiving him. Let's move from there to our final heading today, to Jesus' description. Verse 41, when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and capacity thee round and keep thee in on every side. He says, you're going to be sieged and shall lay thee even with the ground. You're going to be demolished and thy children within you. You're going to be killed. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. If you really get into what Jesus is saying there, Even if you were skeptical, given the great signs and wonders that he had done, you'd have to say, well, I at least want to insulate myself from what he just described. But they were so skeptical that they they didn't even take to heart what he described there. In fact, that's often an overlooked passage. You, You can go through many years in many churches, go through Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Crucifixion, Easter Sunday, the Ascension of Christ, Pentecost, and just skip right over those verses. Never even think about what Jesus says to these people in this time. He said, there's coming a day when they're going to dig a trench around you. They're going to siege your city. They're going to kill every single one of you. They're going to destroy you down to no stone upon the other stone. God's going to allow someone to flatten your earth. What did Johnny Cash say? God's going to cut you down. This is what Jesus says to them here. But it's just as if he didn't even say it. They didn't hear it. They didn't act upon it. And here we find Jesus weeping. Verse 41 says, He beheld the city and he wept over it. Now those are significant times in Jesus' life. He wept at Lazarus' death. 
His friend had died and he cried. He's going to weep in the garden. He's going to pray. He's going to go with his disciples on the night of his arrest to the garden. He's going to go a little further with a few of his disciples and he's going to pray. And he's going to cry. And cry out to the Father because of his impending death. But here we find a third significant time that he weeps. As he describes the coming destruction of Jerusalem as judgment for their rejection of their promised king. This rebellion, the rebellion of his very people, caused him deep sorrow. Some of the very ones crying Hosanna on this day could very well be crying crucify him before the week is out. Why would they do that? Because he must not be the one if he's going to be killed. The one we want is going to kill others. The one we want is going to rule with an iron fist. He's going to put down our Roman oppressors. He's going to put us in power. He's going to make it that we rule and reign with him. This can't be him if he's going to go to a cross and die. Though Jesus enters here in kingly glory, he's going to leave town through death on a cross. But still, giving that information, he's not weeping for himself here. He will accomplish the task before him gloriously. But he weeps here knowing that these people are doomed. Flip over to chapter 23. Just a couple pages to your right. Chapter 23, verse 28. Jesus has been arrested. He's been mocked and tried. They're getting ready to put him on a cross. Verse 27 says there's a great crowd of people following him. Verse 28, but Jesus turning unto them says, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Now that's got to be important. Here's the man headed to the cross. He knows his time on earth is limited. And he says, don't cry for me. Now, he's just not being sentimental there. He's saying, I've got something very important to tell you. But what does he tell them? Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. He said, there's a judgment coming when people will be saying, It'd just be better if people weren't born into this world. Where people would be crying out to the mountains, just follow me and crush me to death because I can't take living in this situation. In this moment, for him to say this should ring so true to their ears. It should cause change in their living. But they just carry on. He said, weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. Church, I would scorn us this morning and say, we're not much different today. We're so confident in being God's people. We're so confident as the the church. We carry on with our ceremonies and our memorials and we go through such weeks. I wonder if Jesus were among us today, if he would say, don't weep for me on Good Friday, weep for yourselves. Many are going to come to me in the last day crying, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to have to say, Depart from me, you're workers of iniquity. I don't even know you. 
Is Jesus going to say that to you? Maybe this morning he's pointing this out and saying, weep for yourselves. Weep for your children. Weep for your children's children. Oh, it's not that bad. The preacher's just a little worked up this morning. It's going to be a good week. We'll hunt eggs before the week's out. Have a ham. Put on our Easter suits. When I was a little boy, I called it a soup. I didn't know it was a suit. I said S-O-U-P. So I sent my dad and mama a text this week of the boys picking out some coats that they're going to wear next Sunday. My dad said, what are y'all doing? And I said, we're getting our Easter soups. <laughs> now, it warms your hearts to stick a dagger in them. Get ready. We like that way more than what I was just talking about, don't we? Jesus saying to you this morning, don't weep for me, weep for yourself. Are you where you need to be with the Lord? Church, we have to check up. Are we doing His will? Adults, if we're not, if you're not, then you better weep for your kids. Because they've got a life of turmoil ahead of them instead of life, peace, and harmony with the Lord. Often we, we do the worst and hope for the best. But the law of the harvest tells us it doesn't work this way. You're going to reap what you sow. You sow to the flesh, you're of the flesh going to reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit. From the Spirit you will reap life everlasting. Oh, I want my kids to grow up and be saved. Well, act like a saved person in front of them. Show them what grace is all about. Show them what a relationship with the Lord means. Well, I'm busy. Weep for yourself. Jesus says to them here in verse 41, If only you had known today the things that make for peace. He means here that peace with God is not possible for those who reject Jesus. To miss Jesus is to miss the time of visitation. It is to face accountability before God. God has visited His people as He has promised. Messiah had come to seek and to save the lost. They refused to recognize this and they were lost. They refused to see God's glory in Jesus. They refused to give God glory for sending Jesus. Their beloved temple. Oh, they, well, they put that temple up above everything else. All the glorious architecture of Jerusalem is going to fall such that no stone would be stacked upon another. And we know from history, A.D. 70, this actually did happen. But I just want to end by saying this. As we consider all that there is in Palm Sunday, as we sing, oh, worship the King, crown Him with many crowns, all hell the power of Jesus' name, as Jesus enters Jerusalem here, they said such things on that day. But these very people are only left with two positions. They could accept Him and worship Him, or they could reject Him and crucify Him. Well, it's no different in our day. So I ask you this morning, will you accept and worship Jesus, or will you continue to reject Him? Those of you unsaved here this morning, you are rejecting Him. And I would encourage you to embrace Him. 
to form a relationship with him, to get to know him. Let the Holy Spirit of God give you faith into salvation by God's grace. But presuming that many of you are baptized believers, I would say to you this morning, what does your living look like? Does it look like you're rejecting him or does it look like you're embracing him? I think that's a great point of reflection as we respond to the passage before us today. And and I don't want us to miss the bigger point. Worship the king. He came in glory on this day and he lives gloriously now and we his people should be worshiping him. But I think we've got to back up first. As we begin this week, when we think about the Last Supper, the prayer in the garden, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, boy, that dead time between his death and his resurrection. His resurrection. I mean, just next, by next Sunday, we're all going to be grinning. We're going to be saying, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Would you pause right now, though, and say, before I begin to worship him, I'm going to check up. My right with God. My where I need to be with the Lord. And boy, I just love amazing grace. The more we sin, the more grace he gives. If you find yourself this morning and say, I've grown cold on God. Or I'm not doing what he would have me to do. It's as simple as 1 John 1, 9. If you will confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive it and to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And then from there, you're back to square one. You correct the pattern of behavior in your life. That's called repentance. And you go in the right way. And you say, well, I've tried that and I keep failing. Well, try again. Let the Holy Spirit work in you to do it better. And what a better week. You can have a week full of spiritual things. What better week to check on yourself this week? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we're so thankful for our time together with the church and your word. Give us a mind and a heart to worship you. I truly believe that some on this Palm Sunday originally saw Jesus for who he was and worshipped him as their expected Messiah. Now as we await his second coming, help us to worship just as wholeheartedly. Help us to daily crown him with many crowns. To worship our king. To say all hell the power of Jesus' name. But Lord, as we want to live in such a way, we must consider our own self. So help us to examine ourselves this morning and Make sure we're where we need to be with you. Lord, for those among us who are unsaved, I pray you would give them faith to salvation today. In Jesus' name. Let's remain bowed and we'll just take some time to respond to the word. You pray and do business with the Lord as the music plays.